The Stanley Cup Finals are underway, and it's the Bruins that have the edge after three games. But we all know what happened the last time St. Louis trailed 2-1 in a series. They won their way to the Finals. Can they do it again and win it all? Plus, the Edmonton Oilers get a new coach and make some changes, while the Sens might have no choice but to trade their all-time legend between the pipes. Episode 174 of the Lace Em Up podcast starts right now. And now, it's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Duboff. We're going to be talking about the Stanley Cup Finals and our main topic. Full disclosure, uh, we are recording this Monday afternoon, so Game 4 is going to be happening Monday night. So it's either going to be 3-1 Bruins or tied at 2 by the time you hear this, but uh, when we're recording right now, it's uh, two to one Bruins have the edge in the series. Uh, so full disclosure before we go any further. And before we go any further, as always, we're gonna delve into the Hockey Hall of Fame book of trivia. Brett, are you ready for this week's question? Yeah, I am. Um, I don't know what All that right. was. I thought I thought you were gonna say full disclosure, Brett is a Bruins fan. It's just like. Yeah, <laughs> also Brett is a Bruins fan. That is also full I- disclosure. <laughs> Yeah, full full fact, but you've probably gotten the idea. You've already you already know, yes. Yeah. yeah, we've been around for four years. Yeah, I if you don't know by now, yes. We have our own. We have a Bruins sense. We're not like, we're not we, biased we at follow, all. Yeah, we we just follow those two teams just because. There's no other reason why. Yeah, we're 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 totally unbiased except for those yeah. two facts. <laughs> Anyways, question sixty. Here's a tough one for you. Uh, the only Hall of Famer. Drafted twice into the NHL came from which country? Was it A, the United States, B, the USSR, C, Czech Republic, or D, Canada? Drafted twice. Wait, what do they mean drafted twice? There is only one Hall of Famer that was drafted by an NHL team twice. Where did that player come from? The U.S., USSR, Czech Republic, or Canada? Uh, I don't even understand this question. How can you be drafted twice? And why does it matter what country he's from? Um, all right, I'm just going to go there's, with... There's, there's only, it's only happened to one guy. Only no, one I know. Hall of Famer has been drafted more than but one. But why does it matter? Like, shouldn't it be like which, which Hall of Famer? Or, I don't know. Like, they should say which player. Um... I'm just I'm just reading the question as No, I know, I know, I know. I'm you get if you can guess the player, I'll give you bonus marks. I'll give you a bonus marks. Well, I don't I definitely do not know the player. I'm just saying I don't know I don't it just seems so weird to know the country. Um I'm gonna rule out USA and Canada because I feel like it wouldn't like they have their uh stuff together. Um Maybe it makes sense if the USSR, you would be drafted twice. I don't even know how you can be drafted twice. That's where it gets me. I guess you can't sign with a team. Yeah, so it would make sense if it's USSR. Check it also kind of makes sense. Let's see here. I'll go with USSR just to speed things up here. Let's go with Russia. Oh, you got it. USSR. All right. Well, nice. And uh, the, if you're wondering who the player is, it's Slava Fedosov. Ah. Yeah, I would uh, not have gotten that. 
so so because you know in in europeans like you know you've you've heard stories about you know people defecting from other countries oh, like okay. Canada, north america and and that was the case here so he was first drafted by montreal in 1978 201st overall so that that's how cautious they were picking him that low because they weren't sure if he was going to come right and then five years later in the 83 draft he was drafted 150th overall by the new jersey devils and at the age of 31 in 1989 he made his first nhl appearance and um he's most remembered for his role with the red wings when they won back-to-back titles in 97 and 98 um but he was so good. Wayne Gretzky called him the best player I ever played against. So high, high praise from the great one for. Uh, so basically, he was drafted first um, in his first year, but then he didn't sign because he couldn't uh, defect, right? Yeah, there, well, there, there okay. was there was probably some other factors back then. Yeah. Got it. Also, I remember there was like a like wasn't like Pavel Bure he. Uh, like he was drafted like uh like the year before people realized that he was able to be drafted or something so the Canucks got him in the 7th round even though like people thought that he would he could be drafted um or just more most of the teams thought he could be drafted the other time but like it had a lot to do with if he could uh come over or not so i remember there well, was and, something and, with Pavel Berry there's also um, scenarios where, you know, people just loved Europe and they yeah. didn't want to leave Europe. But, like, it was the case for Hashik. Like, yeah. seven years after he was drafted by the Hawks, he, he, he came to the Hawks camp. And, like, when when he found out what it meant to be drafted by one of his, one of his teammates uh, in Europe, he said, well, that's nice. And he didn't really care much of it. He's just yeah. like, eh. I, I like Europe, man. It's it's fun here. So it's it's like it, it, it um, took him it took him years before he thought, yeah, I'll give this a shot. Well, it's like uh, Gusev, or um, nowadays, yeah. now he's going to the Golden Knights, or um, it's like um, I think like Datsuk took a while. Um, there's a couple Kucherov, a uh, uh, Panarin's the big one who was in the KHL for a while. Um, yeah. yeah, so I guess that makes sense. Um, all right, we're we're going a little bit too long on this uh, on this yeah. trivia stuff. Um, yeah, so the Stanley Cup final happened. Um, we're I'm gonna recap uh, the main highlights of uh, of these games, kind of like a, an expanded version of a, of what I would do in the season when I would recap Bruins games. Um, but then we're gonna just go over all the different things that happened, and then we'll uh, talk about what our thoughts on. The entire series here. Um, so the first, the first game, um, it was kind of a little bit um, w- open ended at to start. The Blues got things going. Britain Shen uh, had the first goal in the series, um, and then Vladislav uh, Vladimir Tarasenko um, had his ninth goal um, in the second period. Um, it was. So all of a sudden it's two nothing, um, and then all of a sudden then uh, the Bruins get four unanswered goals. Connor Clifton, Charlie McAvoy. Uh, fun fact here: um, the there were at this point in the series there were th- uh, three of the last Bruins goals in a Stanley Cup final game against the the Blues were defensemen. Charlie McAvoy, Connor Clifton, and Bobby Orr, of course. 
um, which I thought was a funny thing because, you know, Bobby Orr scored in 1970. So if you combined all those, the 1970s series and this series, uh, it, would, it would make sense. Anyways, uh, Sean Corrali breaks this uh, defensive Bruins goal streak going. Um, it was a nice goal, too, um, in the third period. And then Brad Marchand gets, a, uh, third, uh, gets an empty netter. Um, some things to note in this game. Uh, Tori Krug uh, hit um, Robert Thomas. Uh, Robert Thomas ended up getting injured, but, like, Tory Krug was just getting, like, four, uh, he just got checked on the other end of the ice, and then he was, like, flying, and then he hit the next person that he saw. I think there was a couple of Blues fans that wanted, or a couple of even um, media people wanted to see Krug get suspended for that hit, but um, honestly, like, the puck was, you know, there wasn't really anything that was suspendable. It was a clean hit. I mean, yeah, I guess his feet left the ground, but like the the Robert Thomas had the puck at the same time. Um, it's like a, it's an iffy call. I wouldn't be like I wouldn't be upset if if he was suspended for that. But it was an awesome hit um, for sure. Um, and it was also like it's it just like one of those things that's like it's probably the, it was probably the biggest hit of this playoff so far. Um, but I felt like we had to talk about it. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. Any thoughts on the game one that I haven't covered yet? So I, I remember in previous podcasts mentioning how important it is to keep your composure and respond well in those big pivotal moments of a game. And this is a great example of what Tory crew did to Robert Thomas. So Here's here's what happened before the hit. So Tori Krug is battling in front of Rask with Blues forward David Perron. Yeah, that's Perron. That's it right. It starts with a bit of battling, then it turns into hacks and whacks and cross checks between the two. Perron then gets a hold of Krug, brings him down to his knees. He's on top of Krug for a few seconds and tries to get up. Looks like his leg is tangled up with Krug as he stands up. Maybe that's a case of crew trying to make sure Perron doesn't get up and get back involved in the play. So of course Perron doesn't like that, so he's going to take Krug's helmet off of his head, then goes down with Krug again, once again ends up on top of the Bruins blue liner, gives Krug a shot before skating to the bench and wrapping up his ship. So Tory Krug at this point obviously looks pissed. He's skating like he's pissed. Yeah. He's skating towards Perron and then he realizes, oh crap, he's he's going to the bench, his shift's over, probably right. wise not to go after him. So he goes into the blue zone with the head of steam. First blues player he sees is Robert Thomas. Obviously doesn't expect the hit. And without his helmet, Tory Krug lowers the boom, takes out Thomas, gets the crowd going. The blues tried to get under Tory Krug's skin on that play. Tory uses that fuel to deliver a big hit that gets the team fired up and the home fans out of their seats. He didn't let that play in the Bruins zone lead to something bad. Tory Krug helped his team out. That was a huge defining play. It caught the attention of everyone in the Bruins locker room after the game. And that is, that is an example of turning something negative into a positive. And it, uh, there have been multiple points in this series where the blues have tried to frustrate the Bruins 
and the most the Bruins are going to do is just let him know, hey, I saw that, but I'm not going to do much of anything else. So just give him a little stare down and walk away and, and continue on with the play. The Bruins have been doing such a good job of that in these playoffs and in this series, and they've been getting rewarded for it. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. It was I, I thanks for providing more detail to what I described. Um, yeah, no, it, it was a big uh, difference maker for sure. I mean, even though I think this happened in the third period when the Bruins were already, I think the Bruins had already scored at that point, so it was already well, and, three and two. At that but point, they were taking control of the game because yeah. if you look at the shots. After the first period, they were thirty. There were thirty to twelve uh, for the Bruins in the second and third period combined. So yeah. they had the momentum going already, and they just kept building on it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, then we go into game two, which was kind of the opposite of that, because mm. um, just in terms of scoring. Um, so the first period. By the way, I was at this game. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you get the donut burger, Brett? Everyone's wondering if you got yeah. the donut burger. I mean, you know this answer. I did yeah. not get the donut burger. No. But I did, for the podcast, I did find where they were selling them, and it is a real thing. So it's not... It is a real thing. Okay. We, weren't so not, we were not making this up. Yep. It, it is a real thing that you can get. I did see some reviews online or um, something is that, like, it's like very, I mean, obviously it's very sugary, so it's like, it's yeah. good, but then like after a while you're like, why am I eating this kind of thing? So Yeah, you're just I mean, like halfway yeah. through, it's just like instant regret, why did I even try yeah. this? <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, I was at this game, it was, it was kind of like I was right behind uh, Tuka Rask uh, for the first and the third period. Um, we had pretty good seats, so that was, that was fun. Um, one of the like most memorable part things of my life, actually. Uh, so it was. I'm glad that I was able to go. Thanks, Dad, for uh, getting the tickets. Um, if I, he doesn't listen, but uh, thanks, Dad, anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we we start things off with Charlie Coyle. He gets a goal um, to start things off. Um, then uh, we get Robert Bertuzzo scores a couple minutes later. I remember this one, I was uh, talking to my friend, um, Aaron, and because we were just mentioning how it felt like uh, the Bru- the Blues were had the puck all the time, and then I was like, luckily we're playing good defense, and then the next thing we know, Bertuzzo scores this goal. Um, that, was a, that was a goal that, uh, that was a shot that uh, Tuca should have had, um, but uh, whatever. Then, um, uh, then a couple, like a minute later, Joe Kim Nordstrom scores a goal. Um, and then uh, Tarasenko gets a goal here um, towards the end of the period. The first thing. Uh, the second and the third were uh, kind of quiet in terms of uh, actual goals, but it was, it was pretty exciting all the way through. Um, it was just very tense. Like, they're both... Um, I felt like the Blues... Um, the bigger, the bigger thing here was that, like, if you look at the shot totals here, um, before I get into the overtime goal, the shot totals, um, were crazy. Uh, um, the, the Blues had 37 goals, uh, 37 shots, excuse me, and, uh, the Bruins had 23 shots. 37 to 23, that's like a 14 shot difference. Um, for the Blues, that's that's kind of crazy, and that's something that can't happen. 
Um, also, like, Brad Marchand had a couple of times where he was, like, he was getting too cute with the puck. Same with Pasternak. Um, like, but, like, for the most part, they were pretty much invisible, which is something that the Bruins can't have. I mean, obviously, it's great to have these depth, depth guys like Coyle, Johansson, uh, Nordstrom. But when, like, uh, when your big guys don't don't get anything going for you, it's like then it's hard to even win games. Um, he was also getting engaged with Patrick Maroon. I noticed that a bit too, which if you're a blue team, yeah. then you have to like because anytime Brad Marchand isn't scoring goals and helping his team is a great time to be a Blues fan. True, yeah. I mean, that's what Patrick Maroon was saying at the beginning of the series is they're trying not to antagonize him. And it's working um, until we get to the next game, but it, it was working yeah. for at least for this game where he wasn't, um, he wasn't as good as he usually is. Um, and then we get to the overtime goal. Um, this was kind of a funny, uh, funny tidbit that everyone keeps talking about in the media. Um, all, it was a little bit more profane, but um, apparently uh, Carl Gunnarsson was uh, peeing right next to uh, Craig Berube in this intermission between after you know during the third period and the overtime, and um, and Gunnarsson just said, "Give me one more shot, um, I'll score." Um, I'm paraphrasing here, and um, and then the correct quote was. I believe the correct quote was, all I need is one more chance. Okay. And then he gets the puck and he, he delivers and he gets his yeah. first goal of the playoffs. Um, it's also funny because I didn't realize this at the time, but he was a uh, he was a 2013, uh, he was on the Leafs in 2013 yeah. Uh, yeah. during that, that whole series. So I'm sure uh, a lot of Leafs fans are annoyed by that, but um but yeah, no, he was he was able to get the shot in, and it was a good story from that perspective. But um, or just a funny story, a tidbit. But what I was thinking is, is that like, of course he's going to be like I know he's Carl Gunnarsson, he's like a third pairing guy, but of course he's going to be on the ice in overtime. Your guys are like like everyone on that team is tired, and there's like six if you're not playing then you're going to be five defensemen short or you're going to only have five defensemen of course he's going to play but it's just um that, that was the only uh critique i have on that that's whole story it's like well duh he's going to be playing but um i guess he uh, he got a shot in and and was able to capitalize on it yeah, what's interesting about um, the second period is just like uh, the Bruins were able to turn the tables on St. Louis in game one, St. Louis did the same to Boston. They actually outshot the Bruins 14-6 to six yeah. in that middle frame. Yeah. And uh, Bennington had some key moments in the third, particularly uh, in the final minutes. Uh, there was a high-danger chance for Pasternak, and uh, Bennington got a piece of it. Oh, yeah, I remember If he that. doesn't stop that, Bruins probably win that game and take a 2 nothing serious lead. Now, getting to Carl Gunnarsson's point, this is when you know you have a team that can win. This guy hadn't scored a playoff goal in his NHL career. He's played 56 games before this game. And with about three minutes left in regulation, he hits the post. I wouldn't blame a player if he was getting frustrated by this point, especially a 32-year-old guy who had never scored a playoff goal as an NHLer. And yet in that conversation with Craig Rube, when he says, all I need is one more chance, and the next chance he goes out there 
and fires a shot that eludes Tuca's blocker hand and ties the series. Boston's in a huge position to get a 2-0 series lead, and instead, the Blues have all the momentum going home. It's now tied at one. That's how this club has been able to get results. It's never relying on just one guy. Everyone is pitching in. Yep. And when you've got role players like Carl Gunnarsson, who have been so snake bit in the past, having this type of confidence, it's a fantastic feeling. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no. And the Blues were the better team the entire time. It was one of those things that Tuca was uh, keeping the Bruins into the in the game for the entire time. I was more impressed from the Bruins' point of view is that, like, the Bruins were playing poorly offensively the entire game. I mean, yeah, Bennington was impressive. Don't get me don't get me wrong, but when he had to be, he was. Yeah, yeah, but like the Blues had all the momentum in the second and the third, especially. So it was like it was it was uh, like it was impressive that the Bruins were able to even make it to overtime uh, to begin with. So um, so there was that, but it was it was just. Um, yeah, no, it was impressive that the Blues were able to come back and, and do all that stuff. Um, there's another note that I have to mention before we get into game three here. Uh, Matt, um, this happened towards my own uh, my own end, um, but so I didn't really get to see the hit, uh, but uh, Oscar Sundquist uh, checks uh, Matt Grizzlick into the boards um, right around the goalie crease, or right around the goalie area, um, and uh, Grizzlick um, collapsed. Um, he didn't play game three, and uh, he may, I think there's reports that he may play game four. We'll see um, when this is out. That's interesting, because he sure. wasn't traveling with the team for game three, so I assume they were going to keep him out for game four as well. I thought, let me double check, but I'm pretty sure... Um, I'm pretty sure I saw that he, um, that he especially made play. with with the way uh, Sunquist make contact with his head, like the head was the primary point of contact on this play. Yeah, I thought I saw that he was he might play. I'm not gonna say that he will play in Game Four, but I thought well, he. Well, you you will know the answer to this because by the time yeah. the podcast is out, Game Four will be completed. So I I I don't. And now I'm trying to look it. where I found it, but I can't find it. Yeah. So maybe maybe you're right that he is. Maybe, maybe call it fifty fifty, but I I say he's not playing. Game yeah, game yeah. I I would I would I would I would say it's probably he's he. I take the bottom half of that fifty fifty. Um, when I saw when I saw that play at first, I thought Sunquist is getting suspended, hundred percent. Yeah, you know, and that's interesting too, because like Sunquist did get suspended a game. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things though that I felt like there wasn't much that Sunquist could have done. Um, it's not like he. I, I mean, obviously he could have just not checked the person, but that's just like a hockey thing. Um, but yeah, no, I I would say that um, he. Like it didn't seem. My point is, is more. It didn't seem intentional or malicious, but um, but uh, yeah, no. I I'm. I guess it makes sense to have him be suspended for at least a game, just for that. But um, I think it was just more of an unfortunate hockey play because I think what ha- happened was Grizzlick moved at the exact worst time, yeah. um, t- to avoid the hit. But it, you know, he didn't end up avoiding the hit, so he just. It was more grizzly. The reason why he got injured wasn't because of Sunquest. It was because Grizzlick uh, messed up his 
his landing. So, um, so there was that. But yeah, I, I guess it makes sense to suspend him a game. Um, just because that's consistent. Matt Larkin of the Hockey News was actually saying, eye for an eye, Grizzlick isn't playing, Sunquist shouldn't be playing either. And that's an interesting take. What the NHL player safety in their video said is that Matt Grizzlick is pursuing the puck as it heads into the Bruins zone. And it's behind the net when Grizzlick tries to chip it along the boards to his right. And and Matt Grizzlick has his back turned to the boards behind the net as he does so. And Sunquist is pursuing the puck. He's pursuing Grizzlick. He's going to make a play. And while the head of Grizzlick is in a vulnerable spot and he's sort of changed the direction of his head, there's a solid argument to be made that he could have been in a position to not make the hit, like dodge it at the last second or not target Grizzlick's head. Like maybe just like, maybe just like chest bump the glass or whatever to, to avoid the guy entirely. And, and Dan Carcillo on, on Twitter felt that the, he even said there was, he felt there was enough time for Sunquist to avoid that. And it's, again, the fact that head contact was made. Like, as soon as head contact was made, intentional or not, the NHL's been pretty consistent on giving at least a game. So I, you can debate whether or not it was avoidable, but the fact that head contact was made, I, I, I think that was enough uh, for suspension. And the fact that Grizzlick wasn't playing in game three that I guess their reasoning was okay eye for an eye this guy's not playing due to injury sit this guy up for a game he's back for game four yeah yeah I guess I guess that's fair maybe an eye for an eye kind of situation but I don't know I felt like it was a little weird um because I didn't think it was like intentional that's where where it gets me but um, I guess it makes sense to just to for consistency's sake to suspend him at least a game, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't know. Um, then we get into game three. Um, it's it's kind of the opposite of game two here because the Bruins dominated this game um, to the point where Bennington gets pulled in the in the third period, um, which is the first, first time, time in his, his career. Uh, it was actually the second period when he got pulled, and it was also oh, right, the first right. time in his NHL career that he got the hook as well. That's right, because the the two goals uh, the Bruins scored in the third period were empty netters, um, or at least the this the first one was. Um, yeah, I believe this. I believe the seventh one was on Jake Allen. The sixth was an empty netter. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Bennington was out by that point. Um. Yeah, we'll get into. I guess that that's a good lead into our recap here. Uh, so we started things off with uh, Patrice Bergeron gets a goal. Um, it was tipped in from Tori Krug, um, who shot it, but it was tipped in from Bergeron. Um, Jake DeBrus also gets an assist on that. Uh, then a couple of minutes later, or seven minutes to be exact, uh, Charlie Coyle uh, gets a goal from. Marcus Johansson and Danton Heinen. It was a nice tic-tac-toe goal there. Um, and then lastly, I had I had tuned this out, um, but I, I noticed that uh, Sean Corrali gets a goal. Um, there was a little bit of a controversy here because um, it was funny, the people I was watching this with, uh, we had all, th- we had the sound, we had the sound up, I guess, but we uh, we weren't really, we just all thought like, it was going to be called back. Um, I was pretty convinced too. Yeah. Yeah, because there was this offside. It was, it was like a 50-50 thing, but it seemed like they were 
going, they were going to call it. Um, and then uh, the goal, the, the ref upheld it, upholds it. Um, mm-hmm. And we didn't have the sound on at the time where we were just talking around. Um, so we, we thought like this goal was called back. And then all of a sudden we were just like, oh, maybe this, we see that it's three nothing on the scoreboard and we're like, Maybe NBC just has them like just keep it at three nothing, keep it at three nothing, um, you know, because like they they we just thought that they forgot to change it, and then we look at the intermission and we see the score says three nothing. I look at my phone and it says three nothing, and then I'm like, and then I I look at your email and you were confused because you made it seem like you were saying like this con- like this goal should be talked about on the show or something like that. I was just like, wait, I think that was this. And then that's when I pointed it out to everyone. I was just like, guys, I think that goal actually counted. And then, and then we were all like, and then the, uh, during the intermission, they mentioned that it was a goal and we were like, oh, okay. So it's three, nothing. Um, but that that was actually one of two turning points that happened. The first was when the blues got the first five shots in the game and a critical power play, the Bruins were able to shut them down. That was the first turning point. The second turning point was that three, nothing goal, because not only does that goal count because it's a failed offside challenge, the blues get a two minute minor out of that. And then the Bruins start the second on that minor bang, another power play goal. And it's four, nothing. So yeah. by the time the Blues get on the board, they're still down by three goals. Right, right. So I mean, I was gonna, those I was two gonna sequences get sequences. Really, really, I, I think those two sequences were the turning points of the game, and both went in Boston's favor. I was gonna get to that. Um, so you already said it. Uh, uh, then in the second period, uh, David Pasternak gets a goal uh, within uh, the first uh, minute of the mm-hmm. second period. Uh, 41 seconds into the period, to be exact. Um, it was a power play. Uh, Tori Krug and Patrice Bergeron get the assist there. Um, then Barbashev gets a goal, but at this point it's 4-1, so they're still they the Bruins still have a three-one lead, a three three goal lead. Um, then Tori Krug gets a goal again. It was a nice shot. Um, he gets a power play goal there uh, from Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron. Um, and then in the third period, uh, Pareko gets a power play goal. Uh, oh, yeah, and uh, I mean, we mentioned Bennington gets pulled. This is the first time in his career. Um, and, yeah, so in comes Jake Allen. Uh, Noel Charlie gets an empty netter. Um, and then Marcus Johansson gets a power play goal shortly after. Um, so that's the goal run down there. Um, some interesting tidbits here. Um, that I have written down. Uh, Tori Krug is the uh, has four points in a game, tied for second in most points in a Stanley Cup final, a game by a defenseman. I think it's also the most in franchise history, um, which is impressive considering the Bruins have been in a couple of Stanley Cup finals um, themselves, um, not just and they also you know recently. Had Ray but Bork and Bobby Orr play for them. Well, that's what I'm mentioning. Yeah, it's like. Uh, uh, like, you know, you would think like Bobby Orr maybe would have some, I guess it makes like Ray Bork was known for not making the playoffs or not, you know, not, uh, that, that whole era of Ray Bork was known for, um, not getting him the cup. So that's not as surprising, but, uh, but you would think that Bobby Orr would have had like a big game one of those, one of those times, but, um, 
he did not, and Krug has four points in the game. Um, and then uh, some other interesting tidbits here. Uh, I was mentioning earlier when I was recapping game two um, how like Patrice Bergeron, uh, David Pasternak, and Brad Marchand have been had been like invisible, but like in game three they uh, turned it on somehow. Um, so the first the first two games there was an empty netter by uh, Brad Marchand and then there was an assist by Pasternak. Um, and then in this game, in game three, uh, Patrice Bergeron gets a goal, uh, Marchand gets an assist, um, and then Pasternak gets in a goal and an assist. Oh, no, 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 wait. No, never mind. Uh, Patrice Bergeron gets a goal and an assist, and, Pat- and Pasternak gets a goal, Marchand gets an assist. So that's four goals, uh, four points uh, combined. Um, and... And that that's good. Uh, that's good to hear from us. I remember after game two, I was listening to the radio, um, and there was like, um, you know, like a lot of people were suspecting that they think that Brad Marchand is injured, um, which is still possible. I remember during the scrimmage, uh, Marchand had to leave early, um, but yeah. then it turns out that uh, like. Marshawn said that he's good to go, but people still think that we're going to find... It's not going to be surprising if we find out that Marshawn is injured um, at the end of all this stuff, because that's, you know, they're hockey players or whatever. Um, but um, I, I also would not be surprised if Pasternak is, is injured as well. Um, we'll see, but... Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's like, it's one of those things that of course, you know, I've been talking about this early on in the season that, you know, we can't expect uh, Marshawn Bergeron and Pasternak to carry the team throughout our, our you know, the season. Um, and they ended up doing that, but like, you know, then we needed our depth and our depth has shown up in a big way in these playoffs especially since Pasternak, Marshawn, and Bergeron, something's going on with them and they're not working. But then we have guys like Corrali, Johansson, Coyle, um, mm-hmm. Nordstrom. Um, I could go on. Even Tory Krug, I guess he counts as a depth guy. Like, they've all, like, shown up in their own way, and that's um, and that's incredible. So, um, and that's yeah. kind of what you want, but it's, it's even more impressive when you have your top-line guys and you have your your depth guys also performing, which is a lot like what the, what happened in this game. Yeah, so we'll get to Tory Krug in, in a second. Yep. Just going to the perfection line. I know you said in your email you hate that they're called. I that. do well, hate what that. What would name. you call the top line? Um, I haven't thought of it, but I just I just hate that line. Okay. Because um, well, it, it doesn't even make sense. I haven't thought of a better name. It just doesn't really make sense to me. It's like. Yeah. You know, it's like, why, why, how do you get the perfection line? I think there's something to, like, if you, if you combine 37, which is Bergeron's number, and Marchand's number, which is 63, you get 100. Um, But then, like, but then you have to count, like, then it doesn't affect Pasternak. So, like, Mm -hmm. I don't don't understand the perfection line, really. Anyways. (laughs) We need uh, to think so, of a better name. It's just not the perfection yeah. one. Yeah. So, um, getting to the top line, in the six losses the Bruins have combined for, that top line combined for two goals and five points. 
that was their combined total in game three alone. So they mm. were definitely back to their old tricks. And I think the reason why everyone's saying, you know, maybe Pasternak, Marshall, and Bergeron are hurt is because of the way they dominated last year's playoffs. And they're just yeah. thinking, what's going on? They're not as or good as season. they were last year. Like, something's up here. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they aren't playing the way that we expect them to be playing. Yeah. Um, well, you, you yeah. mentioned the march on stuff before during the practice scrimmage. Not much was yeah. made of it. We all know Pasternak had that hand injury late in the season that caused him to miss multiple Bergeron has had an injury stint too early on in the season as well. Yeah, may, maybe the Pasternak injury hasn't fully healed. Maybe that's why his numbers yeah. haven't been as known as that's they possible. were before. And, and I also heard on the Hockey Central panel, um, they, they were debating whether or not um, – Bergeron t- not taking late game faceoffs in the defensive zone was a sign that he was hurt because you know when there's a big defensive zone faceoff usually Bergeron's the guy that's taking right. So I, I guess it people's maybe speculate that not just based on offensive numbers but based on what they see on the ice what they saw in november december and january and they were one of the best in the league and all of a sudden they look average here thinking okay what's going on here is there something up but i think everyone's banged up in june you know because it's the playoffs you know it's wear and tear if they're hurt it's not noticeable they're not noticeably hurt right um but the the fact that they had this uh, monster game three uh Definitely puts some of the doubt to bed for now. Yeah, I mean, I think... To Tory Krug, you, you talk about him... You, you talk Sorry. about him as, as a death player. This guy had a four-point game, factored into all four power play goals, yeah. only took two shots, 11 of his 16 playoff points have come with the extra man, 30 of his 53 regular season points in just 64 games came with the extra man, and he played between 25 and 26 minutes in the first two games of this series. So... You, you talk about Tory Krug, you know, pitching in on a depth side. I think it could be a constant candidate with the way he's been playing. Uh, I would still give it to Tuka, but yeah, he is yeah. definitely um, he's, he is he's definitely there, a candidate. Though. Yeah, he's up there. He's working his way up there. It is funny though, if because considering to- Tory Krug is the other one that a lot of Bruins fans want traded too. <laughs> so it's like if you, you mean you mean if Mike Felger, right? I I think it's more Bruins fan other Bruins fans who follow Mike Felger than Felger actually saying this, but it, okay. anyways, it, he has been like a tree bait guy. Um, and a lot more rational Bruins fans like myself are like, no, you can't, you can't trade Tory Krug. Um, but, um, yeah, it would be, it's fun. It's kind of funny when you look at the Con Smythe, uh, like nominees now, and it's like, like Krug and Rask are both on the top of that list right now. And like both of them are like are very polarizing in the in the fan base, so it is kind of funny in that sense. But yeah, um, I think it you know the, this game was a a like it's good to see that Bergeron, Pasternak, and Amarshan are you know are at least effective. But I think there is something going on between. Uh, there's something going on. There just has to be. It's it's more just because, like, they've gotten us this far. They've gotten us into the playoffs. They've gotten us um, to become the third best team in the league. Um, it's just, it just seems like they're not uh, working. And, I mean, there is a reason why. I mean, we've talked about this all year long with the Bruins is their depth. 
and if they, um, you know, because like the I I wasn't sure about their depth being strong enough, and now it seems like they're they're proving me wrong, and I'm happy that I'm wrong about that. That um, the Bruins are able to still be competitive without um, even when those big guys aren't performing like we expect them to be. Now, what, what do you think is going to happen the rest of the series, Brett? Because obviously, you know, at the time of recording this, it's two to one. Anything can happen. Yep. Um, uh, do you want me to go first on that? or, or do you Yeah, you can go first. I mean, okay. yeah, you, you, have, you might have more of an opinion. It's fine. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of using Jordan Bennington's performance in game three as kind of a precursor to what I think could happen in game four. So... There, there's there's debate that Jordan Bennington wasn't on his best. I also think there's debate is that, you know, you shouldn't pin the blame all on him. Like, the first goal was a beauty to hit by Bergeron. Timing on the second goal was a bit late, but it was still a pretty nice goal by Coyle. The Corrali tally went through the five-hole, but it was such a bullet. Like, it went in and out of the net so quickly. Probably the most gorgeous five-hole goal I've seen in years. Um, on the fourth goal, he got outweighted by Pasternak. That was a nice bit of skill there. And Tori Krug was a bit iffy, but it deflected at the last second. It, it certainly wasn't his day, wasn't his best performance, but, I mean, he's not the guy putting the Bruins on the power play four times. So I, I cut him a bit of slack there. Like, the Bruins' power play was, was just clicking. And there are going to be rough games where the bounces don't go your way, and that was the case for Bennington in this game. Yeah. Here's what concerned me about his performance his emotion during the game. He was frustrated after that hand pass loss to San Jose. I think everyone in St. Louis was. But in that Dallas series, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, he was flustered in one of the games, nudged sticks with Stars goalie Ben Bishop during a TV timeout. In game three of this series, he gives a light nudge to Rask on his way to the bench when it was 4 nothing Bruins during a TV timeout. Yep. And when he gets pulled, it looks like he's trying to approach the Boston bench um after he gets uh, the hook after the 5-1 goal if i'm the bruins i i take this as a very good sign because you're in bennington's head now so i think boston is going to put themselves in a very good position i probably sound captainized by saying this boston is going to be in a very good position if they win game four and they're wise to take game four but uh, st louis has to win the next game and if they don't I think this series is over. Well, yeah, you are stating the obvious there. <laughs> um, but yeah, the um, you know the it's, thing. It's it's just that they've been able to bounce back after losses before. I think if they lose back to back games here, I think the emotional psyche really goes into Boston's favor, yeah. especially going home in front of their own fans. I think there's. I forget if this is the. If this is a correct stat or not, you'll you'll probably be able to correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, I believe Biddington has not lost back to backs, um, in these playoffs. Is that right? Um, I believe in his career, counting the regular season, he is twelve and two in games following a loss, and I believe okay. two of those losses came in the playoffs. There was oh, there was game four against Winnipeg because Winnipeg was down two nothing and. Um, I believe the um, the Blues coughed up that 2 nothing lead and the series was tied. And I think in the Dallas series, Dallas 
was trailing two to one, and then they won two straight to take a three-two lead, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Which meant St. Louis had to win two in a row to win the series. Okay. So on two occasions he got burned in the playoffs, but in the regular season he was a perfect six and zero in those situations. Okay, so. so that's where I thought I saw that stat. Okay. Yeah. Um, either either way, twelve and two record. Yeah, after still impressive. A loss in your NHL career, that's impressive. It's still impressive, yeah. Um, but I was yeah. So that's that's where it leads me to believe that I feel like. Um, you know, this is where Bennington, like, he, he got all his frustration out in Game 3. And, you know, I expect him to come back in Game 4 and be his best self and just be mm-hmm. overpowering just because we know what he, he's he been able to do um, previously. I mean, as you just said, a 12-2 and record after losing a game. Uh, which which is why good. I think Game Four is so important for Boston because yeah. if he doesn't get back on track after this game, you're just like, oh my God, what's going on? We didn't win. Yeah. Um, and I I will say that even if the Bruins do win, I I just find it hard to believe that the Bruins will win in, in five. Yeah, um, I'm not saying they're going to win in five, but yeah. it would be a massive edge because now they get three chances to win this series. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, of course, and that's why I'm saying like I'm not, I don't, I think the Blues win one of these games this week, mm-hmm. um, if it's game four or if it's game five, um, and I think I, I, I still think the, I think it's going to be, it's been a close series so far, other than game two, uh, game three, obviously, but. Um, but I, I still think the Blues have a little bit extra in the tank. Uh, like, they can overcome this um, and all that stuff. I'm not, like, taking them lately at all. Um, it was funny that you mentioned that Bennington bumped into Rask and he was trying to get into his head or something. And it's just it just reminded me back in the 2011 series when uh, Luongo uh, commented on Tim Thomas's uh, like, goaltending style and then Tim Thomas said that he's not trying to uh pump anyone's tires or anything something like that um where he's not here to pump Luongo's tires or something like that and it just reminded me of that that thing where like there's a goalie feud coming on but uh, it doesn't seem like Tuca took the bait or anything like that so um but it, it did remind me of the goalie feuds in Stanley Cup finals when it involves the Bruins um although I guess the Blackhawks, Corey Crawford and Tuka Rast didn't really have any feud at all. So, um, but uh, I just I just thought that was an interesting tidbit there. Um, yeah, I I I I still think the Bruins have this because I mean they obviously have a better chance to win, but I'm not counting out the Blues either. I know that's just uh, <laughs> that's even worse than what you did, but. Um, I'm going to say the Bruins in six still. That was my prediction before this series started, but um, so I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, I'm sticking with Blues in seven as well, but okay. I, I do mean it 100%. Game four, they need that win. Yeah, tonight will be a big one for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Tippett, so now we go to the rapid fire here. Um, we have a couple things here. Uh, Dave Tippett uh, is the Oilers coach. Um, kind of an interesting move here, I think. I mean, I think there's not a ton of co- great coaches available still, so it makes sense to do this. Um, to sign him up. He's more of a defensive-minded coach. 
Um, and I think that that could help out uh, the Oilers because that's been their biggest weakness for a long time now is their defense. I did see that he was asked about, like, um, Dave Tippett was asked, like, set, mentioned something about how he, he admires guys like Anze Kopitar, Patrice Bergeron, and, um, like, a lot of, like, center, Brian O'Reilly, um, centers that are very good defensively, but also put up offensive numbers. And he was asked if McDavid, if he would, if he would try to change them to be like a Mc, like he would do that for McDavid and make McDavid more defensively minded. And then uh, Dave Tippett said that, no, he's going to, he's going to, like, he's good defensively, but we know that he's at his best when we put him in all the offensive situations and all that stuff. So that he's going to, which I like to see from uh, McDavid is he's going to try to take the, the whips off him of, of McDavid and see how he can go and just be more offensive, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, situation there in, in Edmonton. Yeah, no doubt about it. And he's got three years to try and make a difference and he's going to be making 2.75 million per year, uh, over those three years. Now, um, I feel like a lot of people are divided about the David Tippett hiring because maybe like he, the new NHL, like the game has passed him by and everyone thinking, oh, you know, he's coached the Miltos Coyotes for seven years. How is he supposed to coach this team that has a little depth outside of McDavid and Dreisaitl? But let's not forget where the Oilers really need help and that's defense. And I've got a boatload of stats, both for the Oilers and for Tippett. So I'll jump into this. So the Oilers in 2010-2011 gave up the third most goals. Next year, still in the top 10, which is not good. 12th most goals against in the lockout shortened season in 2012-2013. But that year, they also averaged the second most shots against per game. Turn the clock to 2013-14, give up the most goals. The year after that, give up the most goals. During McDavid's rookie season fourth most goals against and after a much better 2016-2017 season they surrender the fifth most goals in 2017-18 and the seventh most goals this year so like the Stens they haven't really done a good job of keeping the puck out of their net and taking the pressure off of their goalies Meanwhile, you look at a guy like Dave Tippett, who helped put together a top three stars defense in his first year as head coach back in 0203, second best the next year, sixth best the season after the 05 lockout, back to the top three in 0607, sixth best in 0708, and in 08-09, his last year, that was a rough one. We won't talk about that. But you look at their shots against per game, which is also important. The Stars were a top three team in fewest shots against in Tippett's first year, best team in year two, second best in years three and four, fourth best in 07-08, and even when they had monster setback that led to Dave's firing in 08-09, they were still in the top five for fewest shots against. So throughout the course of that time, they weren't giving the opponents 
much of a chance to score. And their offense was pretty decent too. So we go to Dave Tippett's coaching stint with the Phoenix, Arizona franchise. And we all know that offense was minimal for a lot of those years. But in year one, the team defense was third best in the league. The PK was good enough to make the top 10. Offensively, average at best the next year. The defense and the penalty kill took a step back. But both aspects of defense returned to dominant form the year they went to the conference finals. Um, despite an ineffective power play. Following the short lockout, they take another step back. The power play gets better in 2013-14. Unfortunately, the penalty kill was not. Much the same on both the special teams fronts in 2014-2015, where the Coyotes are a bottom three team. And both special teams in the final two years of Dave Tippett's tenure were horrid. So... Obviously, there is still concern with the power play and the penalty kill where the Oilers have struggled in previous years, especially this year. Um, special teams are going to be important. Maybe the question marks surrounding Dave Tippett are, are, are there, and there's good reason. But in his first couple of years with the new team, he's been able to turn defenses around. He's been able to make the most of what he's got. So now the question becomes, okay, was he the right candidate for the job? Is there another candidate out there on the Oilers' radar that they feel can do a better job defensively than Dave Tippett? And one of the guys in the running was Todd Nelson, who was coaching in the AHL for a number of years. It should be noted that he was Ken Holland's coach, or sorry, no, Ken Holland's, oh, wording is important, so I'll, I'll reword it. Of course, you know, the Detroit Red Wings had a pretty good farm system for quite a few years. Todd Nelson served as the coach of Detroit's AHL affiliate for a couple of years. So if anyone knows what Todd Nelson is capable of, it's Ken Holland. So if he felt that Todd Nelson could do the job as a head coach in the NHL level, I'm sure he would have given it to him. But if he thinks Dave Tippett can get more results with this Oilers team, it's definitely a gamble worth making. But it doesn't disguise all of their flaws, just hiring a new coach that preaches defense. Because Ken Hitchcock was known as a good defensive coach, and what did he do for the Oilers? He didn't have much luck with them. So they still need to improve their defense. They still need to improve their goaltending. I think they need a better insurance plan for Koskinen because I don't think he can do this on his own. Yeah. And they the the team defense, the special teams, all of that needs to be better. And the only way to make changes on the on ice product is to actually change the product you're putting out there. Obviously McDavid and Drysdale still have a role in this team. Everyone else it's up for debate. Yeah, I I mean I think the, obviously, the Oilers still have some work to do, but I think it's a good start to have this guy here, um, at least to uh, to mention all that stuff. I mean, and I also like the fact that, like, I mean, the, the Oilers' biggest problem or biggest critique for years was that they always went with retreads or they always went with guys in-house. And at least they're, I mean, I guess Tippett is a retread, but, um, but at least, you know, he was he was a pretty good coach back 
a couple of years ago. So, um, so they, they at least have like a successful coach that they're bringing in in that sense. And he's not like a former oiler. This is a guy, this is an outsider. Um, so I, I like this move, but again, it's like, I could also see it because it is the Oilers. I could see it, uh, not working out for them. Um, but we'll Which, just, what, one, yeah. the interesting part uh, outside of this is that there have been a lot of changes in the front office. Um, Craig McTavish has left the team. He's now with a KHL franchise. Uh, Paul Coffey, who served as the skills development right. coach since January 2018, he's out. Trent Yanni and Manny Viveros, uh, both assistants, both gone. Gullitson stays on it. Yeah. Will man the power play next year. Um, and probably the most noticeable mm-hmm. departure is Dwayne Sutter, who was VP of player personnel. And why that's important is because he got that job in July of 2016, I believe. That was shortly after the Hall trade and the Lucic signing. So from that point on until Shirelli's dismissal, he was around for a lot of the decisions yeah. that Peter Shirelli made. So uh, I think a lot of Oilers fans are happy that Dwayne Sutter is no longer in that front office. Yeah, and I think that's something that you have to give uh, Greg Greg Holland, uh, Dave Holland, um, Kenny. some... Kenny, Kenny Holland. Kenny. Damn it, I, I missed <laughs> even the second try. Uh, this is something that you have to give uh, credit already to Ken Holland is like, you know, he's kind of, uh, he's already firing guys who have been on the team, uh, who's been in the organization for a long time. Because that's kind of what you need to do. You need to, you need to jump sh- uh, ship completely or change, change everything almost. Um, I mean, obviously you don't trade McDavid or Drysaddle, of course, but like, you know, you have to do everything but that. Um, and, and just on the management side, you have to like, Quote, I hate quoting Donald Trump, but you have to drain the swamp, um, and you have to you have to change things up. So um, I thought I'd hear that phrase on this podcast. I know, I know, I know, but it, it applies here. Uh, you have to uh, you have to change things up, and um, and and so I have to. I'll give kudos to Colin for at least trying something different. It may not work, um, but it is something that they have to do um, for sure. As far as the on-ice product goes, he's already done some things. He said that he's planning on keeping Andre Sequeira, yeah. who has been injury play the past couple of years, but he feels that veteran presence is something they need. Uh, he also um, gave new contracts to Joseph Gambardella and uh, this guy from Europe named Joaquin Nygaard. Nygaard, I've seen highlights of this guy. He is fast. So he's a speedy guy that provides... Um, quite a bit of speed on the wings. Um, it says on Elite Prospects he's got some upside. The It's still a bit raw, and maybe it's a work in progress, but there's a bit of upside to his game. And Gambardella scored 29 AHL goals last year in 50 games. So um, it, it, this is where Ken Holland is going to be tested because in Detroit they were known for years of getting guys under the radar. Hopefully for the Oilers, these are two underrated signings that could pay huge dividends for them. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, the uh, let's go to the next topic here. Um, the uh, twenty, the Finland wins the twenty nineteen World Championship. Um, this is uh, this is uh, this is their second in a row that they won. 
They beat Canada 3-1 in the finals. I was just going to get who scored those goals. Um, what's impressive to me is, is like, obviously Canada is always stacked, but Finland didn't even have a ton of pro players on their team. Um, I mean, obviously you have Capo Caco, uh, who's going to be a pro player pretty soon, but yeah. like, I'm looking here, like I haven't even heard of half of these guys on their roster. Um, Artu Ilomaki gets a goal. Uh, I mean, Capo got two goals in the championship game. Um, but like, let me pull up their roster here quickly. Um, can I pull up the roster? I can't. Pull well, pro- probably the, I have a couple of notes here. One of the notable players was yeah. Marco Antela, the Finnish captain. He scored four of the team's final six goals on route to the title. He got the late equalizer in the quarters yeah. against Sweden to force overtime. Uh, There's... and then he got the game winner against the Russians yeah. and two goals against Canada. So I'm looking at the list of guys on the Finland team. The only, um, other than obviously Capo Kako, who's not, I mean, you could technically call him a pro because he's going to be a pro next year, but um, the only NHL pro that I see on their team is Henry Yokoharu, um, who, went, who was on the Blackhawks, and he only like played half the season. Uh, for Chicago, so it's just it's just impressive that he that Finland was able to uh, get things going while like they're playing like a team Team Canada that had uh, Matt Murray, Carter Hart, uh, Shabbat, Jonathan Marchessault, Dylan Strom, uh, Sam Reinhart, Shea Theodore, Mark Stone, Mark Stone, like pretty much everyone here is a pro. Um, I'm in all this stuff. Sam Reinhardt, Adam Henrique, Darnell Nurse, uh, Kyle Turris, Kyle Turris uh, Sean Couturier, mm-hmm. um, Mantha, um, yeah. Tyler Bertuzzi. So it's like they're all, uh, they're all, I mean, I guess Mark Stone. Um, I could go on, I guess. But they're, you know, Canada has more of a talent there, but whereas Finland, um, None of these guys are in the NHL except for Yokoharu. Um, so that's well, there's, ac- there's actually Lamiko who is uh, who, pl- who spent some time earlier with the Florida Panthers, but okay. neither Yokoharu or Lamiko scored an NHL goal this year. Right. The Russian team they beat in the semis had 212 NHL goals combined this season alone. Yeah. Finland had nobody who scored an NHL goal this year. And, and also. Um, they shut them I, out too. Yeah, I wonder. So in that sense, I wonder if guys like Kevin Lanikin, who is the goaltender for Finland, I wonder if uh, he was like su- supposedly ve- he had a very good uh, championship series. I wonder if he's going to be uh, like a big get in the free agency market. Well, he's a Hawks prospect. So oh, is he a Hawks if prospect? They, if, they, if they don't find anything in him, he, he could be there. He's he's 24 years old. He, oh. he stopped 43 of 44 against the Never Canadians in the gold medal game. So he, he definitely had some bright spots too. Never mind. I, I thought I thought he wasn't on a team. <laughs> I thought. Uh, never mind then. I thought there was going to be a hot thing where he was going to be a big uh, free agent or someone to sign, but I guess not. Never mind. I, I, <laughs> One one of the guys so that I wonder if they could get 
head coaching consideration down the road or coaching consideration yeah. in North America is Yuka Yalin. He coached Finland to Olympic bronze in 2010, world junior gold in 2016, gold in this tournament on two occasions. The fact he was able to get this team in a couple in a span of a couple of weeks from point A to world hockey champions. That that's something that cannot be taken lightly at all. Like he he really got that team to buy in. Yep. Um, as, especially a young guy like Capo Caco. I didn't realize this until after he won uh, World Hockey Championship gold. He won the under eighteen tournament with Finland, the under twenty tournament with Finland, and now World Hockey gold, all in less than a year. Yeah, he's been uh, he's had a good year. Um, for sure. Um, also of note, uh, Dominic Kubelik, I think we mentioned him briefly last week, uh, cause we were talking about the scoring list. He, uh, signed with the Blackhawks, speaking of the Blackhawks. Um, so they they have him in the system because of course the Blackhawks always get these like, um, European guys. Um, so, uh, so he's on the Blackhawks. One of the guys that also impressed me is Teddy Bluger, who is apparently from yep. Latvia, which I didn't know until this tournament. Did you know he won 126 face-offs and lost 75 over no. seven games with Latvia? I did not. Wow. He had the most face-off wins, even more than Couturier. Wow. Like, I, I was astounded to see that stat. Like, that's a win percentage of 62.69%. Like... This, this is good for the Penguins. Like, if you put this guy in a bigger role, Dominic Simon, who had 12 points on the checks too, th- there's there's some underrated talent in this tournament that the Penguins uh, can certainly be happy about moving forward. And and maybe maybe the cap crunch isn't, isn't going to hurt them that bad if guys like Bluger, guys like Simon take a step up next year. Yeah, Definitely yeah. Definitely positive. And another big positive, of course, is William Nylander, who... Any kind of confidence he can get is good confidence. Yeah, for sure. Um, that That is good to see that Willie Nylander is uh, high up there. Other players that are of note that we didn't mention last week, um, I thought it was interesting. Michael Ferleek was in the top 10 um, of the standings. Dominic Simon that you mentioned. Philip Hironik had a pretty good uh, yep. tournament. Uh, he had 11 points in 10 games. Uh Kari Mananen um, is the had the most points for Finland. Um, yep. He has thirteen points. I guess he is he is he a prospect or is he not? I, I didn't check um, the lowdown on him. No. Um, and then there was another one that I was going to mention that. Oh, uh, for your uh, your team, the Ottawa Senators, Rudolf Balsers. Um, mm-hmm. Had, uh, finished 22nd in the points race. Um, he had nine points in seven games for Latvia. Um, so I thought that was something that you could look forward to. I know mm-hmm. it's not top 10 stuff or even top 15, but... Um, uh, he, was, he was in the top 10 in assists. I believe eight of those nine points yeah, were assists so, as well. Yeah. Um, what's, what's also interesting, if you're a Vegas Golden Knights fan, Nikita Gusev had 16 yeah. points in 10 games. So I if, think if we they mentioned keep that him aboard and put him in a top six role, he could do stuff. Yeah, we mentioned that last week. And also, Anthony Mantha had a f- 14 points in nine games. That's yeah. that's pretty good, too. Um, all right, let's go to, uh, I mean, you can take over this segment here. 
uh, you're going to take over the, the next three things of the rest of the episode. Because uh, <laughs> this one is uh, CHL stuff, which you are our expert in. And then we have some Sens news, which you are our expert in as well. So uh, Ruen Noranda Huskies, is that right? They, yeah, Ruen Huskies, yep. Uh, they win the Memorial Cup. The only thing I know about Ruan Noranda is that Jacob Blackow, who's a Bruins prospect, yep. he is one of the players there. But um, that's all I know. I didn't even watch the game. I don't even know who they beat. I think it's the Gulf Storm, if if I if I was following your emails. Um, but yeah, so I don't even know anything else about them. But um, I'll let you take over here. Yeah, I'll give you a full recap. Uh, Prince Albert Raiders definitely didn't win it because they dropped all three games. They were the first out of the tournament. Um, I said if Guelph made it even to the semifinals, it was their tournament to lose, and they lost it. Uh, Ruin Naranda beat them in the semis to advance to the Memorial Cup final where they would play the hosts from Halifax who booked their tickets uh, in the round robin. And uh, after building up a 2 nothing lead, the Mooseheads were well on their way to their second title of the decade. And then the Huskies just found another level. This team didn't win 59 games during the regular season out of pure luck. And in the third period, they showed why. And the third period was the calling card for this Ruin Naranda Huskies team. In the regular season, if you see the regular season goal differential in the final 20 minutes, not even close like they blow the competition out of the water they continued that trend in the qmjhl playoffs and in this tournament alone in the five games they played they outscored teams 10 to 1 in the final 20 wow. minutes of play so with the game tied 2-2 in the third you know what's coming up next the huskies score two goals they go from two nothing down to four two up Mooseheads didn't score another goal, and just like Halifax did in 2013, the 2019 Huskies gave Ruin Naranda their first ever Memorial Cup championship. So a very feel-good story for them. Uh, Habs prospect Joel Teasdale was named tournament MVP after posting four goals and one assist in five games. Huge shout-out to Noah Dobson, Islanders prospect, who reportedly played, I don't know how this is possible, 14 minutes in a period. Wow. 14 of 20 minutes play. That's like three quarters of one period. When yeah. you do that, that's crazy. I, I can see why you you win back-to-back QMJHL and Memorial Cup titles. And it was the same for head coach Mario Pugliot, who was also Dobson's head coach with Acadie Bathurst when they won it all last year. And uh, this time around, he, co- he coached uh, Ruin Aranda to glory. So... A huge moment for Mario Pouliot, huge moment for Noah Dobson, huge moment for the city of Ruin Aranda, and this year's Huskies. Congratulations. Interesting. Um, all right, let's go to the Bruins Sens segment, although we already talked about the Bruins here. So yeah. uh, the Sens, uh, I mean, I guess I, I can speak to this as well, but uh, you'll, you'll talk predominantly here. Uh, Anders Nielsen signed a two-year deal. Um, you were very excited about this. Yeah, so I'm going to have a bit of cautious optimism, and, and I'll tell you why after I get your thoughts on Anders Nilsson, because there is a bit of a chain reaction here. But I'll start off what I think about this contract. So it's a two-year extension with the Sens, worth $5.2 million overall. That comes down to a $2.6 million AAV. He gets $2.8 million in year one. That's this year. And next year, he gets $2.4 million. 
When you take a look at Nielsen's career stats, there are a few things to consider. He went 10, 10, and 4 with the Sabres in 2016-2017 with a 2.67 goals against average and a 923 save percentage. Key there is the 923 save percentage. That Sabres team averaged the most shots against per game that season. 857 shots and 26 appearances for Anders Nielsen that year. So that's an average of 32.9 shots face per game. Faced the same workload in Vancouver the next year. That team gave up the sixth most goals in the NHL in 2017-2018. So if you're wondering, gee, why was the GAA going from 2.67 to 3.44 in one year? No doubt it wasn't his best year, but there were some other factors. Then he posts um, a GAA over three in his first 12 starts with the Canucks this year. So at that point, maybe some are thinking, okay, well... You're getting traded to Ottawa. The Sens can't win to save their life. His career is probably going to die there, and he's probably going to go to Europe. Instead, he goes 11-11-0 with the Sens, pitches two shutouts, a 9-14 save percentage, and a decent 2.9 GAA considering the Sens were crap as a team. They were crap. Um, from January 3rd to the end of the regular season, 21st in most shots faced amongst NHL goalies. Um, so again, pretty impressive when you consider the workload, how many games he played with the Sens from that point on and how many shots he faced. Um, I think he's quietly capable of holding the fort and providing stable goaltending when your starter needs a rest. And Craig Anderson at the start of this year did not have that type of goalie. This team was riding him hard and I think it cost the senators down the line. On top of being a good team player and a reliable one when he's locked in, Anders Nielsen is also a good community guy. Off the ice, he's a supporter of the LGBT community. I love a good character guy in the dressing room. But in the long run, Nielsen may not be the guy for this team. I think the center's ideal plan, assuming everything works out, is that one of the young goalies they have in their system is going to grab the number one job down the road and just run with it. If it's Marcus Hogberg, great because he showed a lot of signs in Belleville this year that he could be the guy. If it's Philip Gustafson, fantastic, because he's got potential, he's got room to grow, it's definitely there for him to make an impact with this team. If it's Joey Decord, brilliant, because he had a solid collegiate year, but he needs to find his way in the lower levels before he makes it up here. I think by signing Nielsen to this contract, you're just simply buying time for the younger guys to get it together. After these two years are up, I don't know if he comes back. Maybe if he's willing to accept the backup role, maybe keep him aboard. But in two years down the line, I don't expect him to be the starter. I don't think that's the plan. And I hope it's not the plan because the future number one goalie has to be one of the young guys that the Sens have. Um, so before I get into the chain reaction as to what this means for the other goalies, um, overall, what, what did you what did you think of Anders Nielsen in his time in Ottawa, and do you think the Sens kind of made the right move here? Yeah, that's a that's a good take that you have about like I don't think he's going to be like a long term goalie for them, but I think for the moment, right now, considering where the team is going, um, just rebuilding and not really sure what they're doing, um, it makes sense to you know it's it's like a cheap deal. It's two years. It's not like something so strenuous. Um, so I like it. I mean, we don't really know the health of Craig Anderson. It feels like Craig Anderson's been so inconsistent, um, uh, these past couple of years, not just 
just his play, but his, you know, his injury history. So it's always good to have like a guy like Anders Nilsson in the background. And especially when you're making like 2.6 million, that's, you know, like if he, it's like kind of a low risk, high reward type of situation. It's like, he may not work out. Um, but if, if he does, then this is a steal of a, of a contract. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was kind of the same way yeah. when the Sens traded Elliott to Colorado for Anderson, or it's just like, you know, this guy's been a starter for a couple of years, you know, maybe he works it out. And as we all know, Craig Anderson is probably going to be yeah. going down when his career is all said and done. He'll probably go down as the best goalie Ottawa's yeah. ever had. And, and you said it before, and you said it all as well. It's like, you know, they have a couple of guys in the system like Philip Gustafson, Hogberg, Joey Decord. They can all be, you know, we don't really know what they're going to be on the pro level until they get there. Um, so it's good to have a guy like Anders Nielsen who um, can fill a role while we figure, while you guys figure that out. Mm-hmm. Who's so the actual goalie figure? Now I get to the chain reaction part here. One of the big questions I had when they made the signing official is what's going to happen to Craig Anderson because it would not make sense for the Sens to pay a backup goalie over $2.5 million per year. And yes, I know that was a bad idea with Mike Condon because yeah. look how well he's turned out. But when, when I see this Anders Nielsen signing, I can't believe I'm saying this. I think Craig Anderson, all signs point to him getting traded before the season begins. And yeah, I could see that. I, I honestly do not classify this as a blindside trade that shocks the fan base. And it's going to hurt because this guy has always done more with less. He's given this team absolutely everything during his time here. And then some, no matter how good or how bad this team has been, short-term, long-term, he's been in it for the long haul. He's a lock, he's a lock for the Sens Ring of Honor someday. But this is a move that everyone is going to see coming because it's it's just a sensical business deal given where this team is. Like, you have Mike Condon buried in the minors. He struggled in the little time he played as Anderson's backup last year. Gets waived. No one claims him. He reports to Belleville. Gets hurt. Doesn't really play after that. What value does Mike Condon give you right now with one year left on his deal at $3 million per? Zero. Zero value. No one's taking Mike Condon off your hands. So my guess is the Sens will keep Mike Condon in the minors for all of next year and then not re-sign him. For the present time, the Sens should be focused on their future. Joey Decord and Philip Gustafson need time in Belleville to groom and develop. With what we've seen from Hogwarts, he might be NHL ready as a backup to Nelson this year. Combined, Condon, Anderson, and Nielsen are making almost $10 million this coming season. So to keep Anderson around and limit the growth of your goalies by one season just doesn't make sense. And I also think at the same time, it would be unfair to Craig Anderson because he's got so much left to give as an NHLer. And and I'll, and I'll show you last year's stats, or I guess we're still into this year. I'll show you this year's stats as an example. At the beginning, I said it before, at the beginning, the Sens overused Anderson, and I think that's partially why his second-half stats were so bad. His GAA at the end of the season was 3.51, which is bad. Despite that, Craig Anderson's save percentage on that same god-awful Sens roster was 903. 
a GAA over 3.5 and a safe percentage still over 900. How in God's name do you explain that? Like, I honestly can't. In all but 12 of his 47 starts, he faced 30 or more shots. In 11 of those 47, he faced over 40. He was in the top 15 or top 20 in shots faced during the regular season, averaging 33.52 shots against per game, which is a higher average than Nielsen's small sample size with the Sens. He has a lot more to give at the NHL level. And it would be unfair to put Craig Anderson in a reduced role. I think in a 1A, 1B goaltending system like the Islanders had this year, he could do some damage. Because a couple of years ago, this guy went 25, 11, and 4 in 40 games with a 2.28 goals against and a 926 save percentage. He did that as a 35-year-old. And what he just did with the Sens on a god-awful team, he was 38. So... I think if you can post a 903 save percentage on a crappy team like Ottawa, I think even at the age of 38, there's still some value to Craig Anderson. And that's why an off-season trade makes the most sense. Because even though he's got a 10-team no trade, with a year left at $4 million, if there's a team that strikes out on the goaltending market, a guy like Craig Anderson could be a good gamble to bet on. And if it means more value for the rebuild, if it means getting another piece or two, so be it, get it done. And it sucks that I have to admit this, but I think Craig Anderson's time in Ottawa has come to an end, not because he wants it to, not because of anything he did wrong. It's just the climate has changed and there's no room for him on the roster. Just with the way this team is going, the direction in which this team is going, they need to... They need to look forward, not backward. And it's not that Craig Anderson's holding them back. It's just that it doesn't make sense to keep him around. And it's not right to keep him around in a reduced role either. So that's that's why I think the Anders Nielsen signing signals the end for Craig Anderson. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense that Craig Anderson is uh, numbered. But I'll, to that point, though, he only has one more year left on this contract, so he yeah. could just wait it out for a season, um, and then and then just test free agency or retire or whatever. Um, yeah, that's, we'll that's why I think a trade is is going to happen because um, he's definitely inching closer and closer to retirement, and that's the other thing why. By keeping Anders Nielsen, it kind of signals the end. Anders Nielsen is 29 years old, I believe. Yeah. So he's like seven, eight, nine years younger than Craig Anderson. Yeah. So, like, keep Craig Anderson around for two more years instead of re-signing a guy like Anders Nielsen maybe buys you a couple more years to get the young guys ready. At, at, once again, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And once again, it's not Anderson's fault. It's just the situation that this team is in. Yeah, for sure. Also, uh, I don't know if you were going to mention this, but Josh Nor Joshua Norris um, signed an entry-level contract um, as well. Um, yeah, yeah, and it should be noted that he's also good buddies with Brady Kachuk, so that definitely uh, pleases the future. You, you don't want to piss off any more of the Sens players that yeah. you want to keep around. For uh, sure. And he, and he, had, a, he had a decent second-year Yeah, I was about to say. In 19 points in 17 games. He uh, did get injured, though, but yeah. Short, but yeah, there's upside there for sure. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking here. I think he um, he had 19 points in 17 games before he got injured. 
Um, and then he played in the World Juniors where he had six points in seven games um, in the World Juniors. So, yeah, he has some potential there for sure. Um, yeah, and, and, and he could get a big workload in the AHL when you consider with the youth movement, maybe guys like Greg Batherson, guys like Rudolph Balsers, guys like Logan Brown, maybe they're going to spend more time in the NHL, and which means uh, in the AHL they're going to need guys like Josh Norris and Alex Formanson to carry the load yep. offensively. So that, if, if that ends up being the case, um, Josh Norris will probably have to be uh, asked to carry the load early. For sure. Um, all right, that's about it. That wraps it up for us here. Um, of course, we'll, we'll have more news uh, next week and the week after, but... Uh, seems like it's a it's a short week this week uh just because i guess nhl teams are all 29 teams kind of uh take it easy for the moment uh while they wait to see what happens in the s the stanley cup final um and then i think once that ends then we'll get a lot more nhl news um one thing i will say though is there has been a lot of trade rumors swirling yep um, so once the Stanley Cup playoffs come to an end, I think you're going to see a lot of headlines coming through the grapevines. Especially. Even more so, even more so once uh, the big names uh, start signing with teams. Yeah, I was about to say, especially since like there's so many good free agencies out there, UFAs or RFAs. So um, it's going to be an exciting time for sure. Um you can catch us on SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify if you haven't already. Um, and follow us and subscribe if you haven't already. Um, our Facebook is Lace Up Pod. Or, or sorry, our Facebook is Lace Them Up. Our Twitter is Lace Up Podcast. Um, that's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. Steve Ellsworth will talk again in episode 175 of the Lace Them Up Podcast.